Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 155 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We're so happy to be together. Chris has got the biggest smile on her face because she just finished her semester of school. Yes, I did. I survived Python. Right on. Yes. It was dicey. There were moments of the semester that were hard. There were. There was crying at my desk, and I could talk about that later. Yes. <laughs> but she kind of skipped through the door, so hopefully this whole episode will be filled with joy and love. <laughs> <laughs> the first joy and love we have is to thank another Patreon sponsor, Tony. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Tony. We so appreciate it. We really do, and I think we might be seeing Tony this weekend. I hope so. Yeah. Tony is someone we met through Booktopia originally up in Vermont. Yes. So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading The Economy of Prestige, Prizes, Awards, and the Circulation of Cultural Value. This is by James F. English, and it is about literary awards, cultural awards, really, because I was flipping through, and I know I saw something about a movie award. It's actually Ben Affleck's Golden Raspberry Trophy for Worst Actor. (laughs) (laughs) But he's talking about, you know, the economics about awards. And I'm really looking forward to this. In this book, I'm reading it in part because, or well, not in part, only because of Dr. English's appearance at the upcoming Spring Willa Cather Conference in early June. He's one of the invited guest lecturers. This book, I definitely not on my radar until I saw it there. So, Looking forward to this very much. I just really started the intro. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what you unearth by reading that. I'm currently reading two different story collections that I want to bring people's attention to. They both release on May 17th. So just around the corner, you can pre-order them now. One is called She is Haunted by Paige Clark. This is from our friends over at $2 Radio. I love this independent press. If you live in the Columbus area, Columbus, Ohio, go visit their store. It's amazing. Paige Clark is a Chinese American Australian fiction writer. The first story in the collection is called Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Isn't she the author that started The Five Stages of Grief? And it's about a pregnant woman making a deal with God to take her baby instead of her mm. partner. Mm. Oh, it is such an intense story. Her writing is fantastic. Uh, debut collection. Again, it's called She is Haunted by Paige Clark. And this is out on 517. It has a very intriguing cover. It's kind of like a dusty pink with black text. And then there's a pair of scissors. And on the other side, a little lock of hair. Yeah. And makes you wonder. Well, there's always that classic, you know, kids getting their hair cut by themselves or a friend. (laughs) In my case, with my daughter, it was her cutting her cousin's hair. (laughs) I will never forget walking down the stairs and just seeing a trail of hair. (laughs) (laughs) On the cover, there's also a blurb. In sentences of bracing snap and clarity, Clark's stories delight and amuse, even as they expose tender truths and secrets, an astonishing debut by Wells Tower. Hmm. Yeah, I have loved the stories I've read so far. And then the other collection I'm reading... For those of you who were fans of Maggie Shipstead, she is the author of Great Circle. She has a new story collection coming out called You Have a Friend in 10A. Mm. I also read the first story in that collection and it took my breath away. 
She's such a good writer. And I guess these are stories she's written over many, many years from her time in MFA to present. Okay. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Maybe I'll check that out because I know The Great Circle is one I'd like to read, but it's a big chunkster, isn't it? It is. I don't think her other books were quite as long, but story collections are a great way, of course, to be introduced to someone's writing. And now it seems like this debut is interesting that it's a story collection because historically they always said, oh, great, you have a story collection. We need to see a novel first and then we'll consider publishing your stories. But now it seems like story collections, especially linked story collections, have grown in popularity and they can be debuts for authors. Cool. So what did you just read, Chris? Well, I was looking for a short audiobook to listen to. A couple of weeks ago, I had a lot of driving to do, and I found one about Thomas Merton. It's Thomas Merton, An Introduction to His Life, Teachings, and Practices by John M. Sweeney. It's a short book. I mean, the book itself is only 160 pages. I don't remember offhand, and I didn't write down how long the audiobook is, but something tells me it was like three hours. I mean, I listened to it in a day as I was doing all that driving. And I really enjoyed this book. I'm always a little skeptical of introductory books like this. I thought, though, the author did a great job of looking at Merton's life from his birth until his death, looking at his development as a spiritual seeker and a philosopher, basically, and then also currents in his life, maybe what helped push him in certain directions. And Thomas Merton, he wrote The Seven-Story Mountain, and it's one of my favorite spiritual autobiographies. I think other than that book, I read one called Thoughts in Solitude by Merton. And one of the things about this short introduction, it did make me want to read more of Merton. There are several books that the author pointed out that might be good places to start for people who are looking for, you know, X or Y. That was Thomas Merton, An Introduction to His Life, Teachings and Practices by John M. Sweeney. It's available now. I think it came out in 2021. It's from um, St. Martin's Press. Very cool. I kind of like those also like books that you can just appreciate in a day. Remember when we were talking to Will Schwalbe and he talked about that's like one of his favorite things is just to spend a day with a book from start to finish, Mm -hmm. even though his partner might not like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you want to try it and you're into spiritual reading or religion theology, this might be a good one to try 160 pages. I think most people could do that in a day. Yeah. I was having a really hard time getting into a book. You know, I was definitely having a little bit of a slump. And then I picked up The Year of the Horses, a memoir by Courtney Mom, who's going to be at Booktopia. And I just fell in love with it right away. This book is about the time in her life after she's given birth to her daughter. She's suffering from a debilitating depression. She has severe insomnia. She's having all manner of problems, physical problems with her body. As a child, she had a love of horses. And she's living up in the northwest corner of Connecticut, which is very farmland and really beautiful. And she starts to ride horses again and actually starts playing polo. There's not a lot of women who play polo. So the people who were running the farms were really excited to get her. And what I really appreciated about this book was she was terrible at polo, but she was determined to keep going. She also just really 
wove back in time, reflected on her childhood, why she stopped riding horses as a child, her family dynamic, which we all know has a lot to do with our established neural pathways and why maybe she was experiencing some of the depression she was experiencing as now an adult. And also just the relationship that humans and horses have with each other and why sitting on a horse and working at a farm with horses might really be helping her sleep better and feel like a better mother and wife. One of the things I think she also really talks about that writers out there might really appreciate is just having a writing life and how difficult it is to deal with some of the unknown times when you're writing and you're suffering from depression and how to form your time as an author and then also go on book tour and all of that kind of stuff. So she really wove a lot in this book and I devoured it. I cannot wait to meet her this weekend. Again, the book is called The Year of the Horses, a memoir by Courtney Malm, and it just released this week on 5.3. Oh, excellent. I'm so glad you enjoyed that. I know that was one that some people weren't so sure about, but from what I hear, everyone just gets sucked right into that one. Yeah, and she's also really well-known. I don't have the title of this book, but it might be one that I would think they would have up at Northshire for us about the publishing life, like how to write, get published, all that kind of stuff that I think did really well. I think that might've come out during the pandemic. Oh, very cool. I have to check that out. Well, the next book I read, Talk About Depression, this one is fiction. Everyone in this room will someday be dead by Emily Austin. Ooh, I mean, this is a painful, but really funny book. So dark humor, which is not always my thing, but I was attracted to this novel. And I have an advanced reader copy that I recently got, even though this book came out last year. So it's a story about a woman named Gilda. She's a 28-year-old lesbian who is living with severe anxiety and depression. I mean, it's intense. And while I was reading this, I just thought she did an excellent job of depicting what it's like when you have those conditions and how debilitating it is. I think a lot of people say, snap out of it, just get up and go to work. And it's just not that easy when you have conditions like that. Her only option initially is to go to the emergency room for help. So everyone there knows her. The janitor even knows her by first name. And they keep submitting referrals for her to see a psychiatrist. And it takes forever to get through. This is up in Canada, I believe. So she eventually meets with somebody and and gets on some psychiatric medication that she's taking. But the beginning of the book, she's 28 years old. She's living alone. She's been fired from her bookstore job because she didn't show up for five days because she couldn't get out of the house to do that. And she's walking around and a nun hands her a flyer. There's something in there. It was like for a self-help type group. So she goes, it's actually a church. And she's standing in front of the church looking at it. She's an atheist. She's standing in front of the church looking at it. And the priest comes out and he's like, oh, you must be here for the interview. So again, remember, she's not neurologically typical. So her brain doesn't work like a person who's at their best. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so she kind of goes with these things. So here she is. She's gay. She's an atheist. And she gets this job as an administrative assistant at this church. And everything kind of goes on from there. That's a great setup. (laughs) It is a great setup, I thought. And then there's a murder mystery that happens, which I didn't see really coming. 
But you get a lot of her background. She comes from a very dysfunctional family. Her dad has emotional struggles. It sounds like he might have anxiety and depression. And they both look the other way at the problems with her brother, who is a raging alcoholic, but they don't see it. He's a bit younger than she is. He had dropped out of college and is living at home. And they just don't see the problems. As you just said about you know, the memoir, when looking at people's families, you can really understand more where they are. I enjoyed it. I think this is a book that if you don't have experience with these issues, either personally or through someone you know and understand a little bit, you might not enjoy this book. I don't think it's one that's for everyone. But I really loved it. I laughed. I got really frustrated. One of the things that Gilda is her name, she steals from the church. She steals wine and then also bread. She's like, these are like the shittiest wafers ever. <laughs> and she finds out what they are. Right. And she's like, oh, great. I'm eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. At one point, she's drinking too on top of all of this. She says, I'm hungover. I can smell God's blood in my sweat. That made me laugh because, you know, she's drinking the stolen consecrated wine. Right. So um, <laughs> really interesting book. I enjoyed it very much. And it's one of those that I could see rereading to see how she sets things up a little bit. Mm. Had you heard about this one? I have. And I also got an e-arc of it and okay. just never got to it because partly the title is just so really catches your eye. Yeah. You and know? there's bunnies on the cover. Mm-hmm. And that's part of one of her challenges is when she was a child, her bunny died mm. and her parents did nothing to help her with the situation. But again, that's everyone in this room will someday be dead by Emily Austin. I loved it. Right on. Well, I'll take us to a little bit more of an uplifting place. (laughs) I finished a book called Marrying the Ketchups by Jennifer Close. Do you know what marrying the ketchups means? I don't. So if you work in restaurants and you're a server, there's something called side work that you do at the end of the evening, usually the end of a shift. One of the things you're tasked with doing is marrying the ketchups, which means you take bottles of Heinz ketchup, let's say, and if one of them is half empty, you might fill up one that's partially full and then marry them together. I have to say that at one point when I was working in a restaurant, I saw a little kid wander off to like every table in the restaurant and lick the like take the lids off and lick the tops of the ketchup. So... (laughs) Don't think marrying ketchups is such a good idea anymore. And a lot of restaurants don't do that and give you like a little thing of it. Yeah, a little cup, right? right? That's, exactly. That's the safe way to go. Exactly. But this book is about a big Irish family in Chicago. It revolves around the restaurant Sullivan's. This book is so Chicago, Chris. I thought about you all the time. There's lots of references to the city and towns in the city, specifically Oak Park. It also takes place in 2017, which is the year that the Cubs won the World Series. So there's little vignettes about all the different characters' experience watching the World Series because they're all diehard Cubs fans. And it takes place in 2017, which is after Trump's election. So that has a lot to do with some of the storylines. And then the patriarch of the family, Bud, passes away. And that all happens at the very beginning of the book. From that point, it takes place mostly from three different perspectives, sisters Gretchen and Jane and their cousin Teddy, and then the whole huge family dynamic. They're all experiencing different things in their life, but all of it revolves around the restaurant. So I 
adored this book. I want to read to you something that made me laugh out loud, which is a little bit of Chris likes to talk about synchronicity. So this is something that was mentioned in the last episode. Dottie is one of the oldest servers who's worked at Sullivan's for a long time. Dottie worked at Sullivan's from the time Gretchen was five until she was 10. Dottie was faster than every other server. She used to weave around people and shout, picking up on her way to the kitchen. Most servers carried four plates, but Dottie could line four up her left arm and grab a fifth with her right. She never winced at the heat. She bounced on her toes and laughed at everything Gretchen said. At the end of every shift, she used to collapse in a booth and say, these dogs are barking. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone who remembers, uh, we talked about how when we went on a Biblio adventure to New York, Chris said her dogs were barking and I said I'd never really heard that term. So maybe it's a Chicago term. I don't know. Yeah, I, I did a little research and I didn't write the man's name down, but he was known for making these little sayings. And that was one that he had made. And then there was some loose connection to the Marine Corps. So I could have picked it up there. I could have picked it up in Chicago. Who knows? Yeah. So then this is another reference to marrying the ketchups. No one marries the ketchups anymore. Not at Sullivan's anyway. They stopped years ago when Bud decided that the ketchup should be served in little metal containers on the side because it looked nicer than having bottles on the table. No more waitresses chatting and thumping bottles. No more combining two halves to make a whole. Teddy was the one who pointed out how germy the whole operation really was. The transferring of condiments back and forth each night. The possibility of contamination. It was a health violation waiting to happen, to say nothing of the time when the waitresses could still smoke in the restaurant, ashing right next to the open bottles. (laughs) (laughs) So this book was very restauranty, lots of relationships with the different people, and I just adored it. Dare I say I ate it up. (laughs) Again, it's called Marrying the Ketchups by Jennifer Close, available now. Awesome. That sounds really good. I'm going to take us back to a dark place. (laughs) Uh, The next book I read is actually considered a novella, Lucky Girl, How I Became a Horror Writer, A Krampus Story by M. Rickert. Now, this is one that's not coming out until September 13th, 2022. I got an ARC, one of the reps from Tor.com emailed and said, are you interested? I was like, yeah, totally. I had just turned in my last assignment, and I thought, oh, this will be perfect to read something on the short side that's horror. And it was. I enjoyed this story so much. It's about a struggling writer who's on the young side. I think she's just out of college. And she meets these three other people one Christmas season at a diner that's closing. It's just it's had its heyday. The food is crappy. It's dirty. And another place opens across the streets that pulls all the people in town to that. So they decide to have this impromptu Christmas gathering, the four of them. And that's how they meet. I won't say much about anything that happens. Um, They meet again decades later. And now the young woman who is the struggling writer is a famous horror writer. And they get invited to one of the guy's estate. He has this tea plantation that he inherited from the family. And bad things happen to this woman. I don't want to give spoilers because there are different things in her life, hence being lucky girl that she survives these things. And then when you finish it, you're thinking like, oh, I need to maybe reread this. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it is a novella, so you, it wouldn't be so hard to do that. Exactly. Right? right. It wouldn't be hard at all. But I, I certainly enjoyed it. I happened to also then last night on Twitter, I was just kind of scanning through Twitter and I saw somebody post a couple books that they've been highly anticipating and really enjoyed. And this was one of them. And then other people are saying, oh, Rickert, I've been reading her since, you know, blah, blah, blah. M it stands for Mary, apparently. And she publishes under Mary Rickert and then M Rickert. And when you say horror, was it like blood and guts? Is it just scary? What would you, I just think people might want to know. People well, like your friend Emily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no like blood splatter kind of stuff. People die, but there's no details really about that. There's the threat of a vampire. So it's not like thrasher horror. No, you don't see anybody suffering. Okay. So that's not that kind of horror. Because I don't really, that that slasher kind of horror stuff, I really don't like that. Mm -hmm. I like the more suspenseful, monster-based horror. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So again, that is Lucky Girl, How I Became a Horror Writer, A Krampus Story by M. Rickert, coming out September 13th. So put it on your Goodreads or however you keep track of what you want to read if you are into horror. Right on. And thanks to Tor.com. So the last book I read, I am so friggin' happy to say that I have read this book. It's called Python for Everybody, Exploring Data in Python 3. <laughs> and it has such happy orange font on the yes. cover. <laughs> it's by Charles Severance, uh, Dr. Chuck, as he is affectionately known. If you were interested in learning Python, this might be a good one to start with. The little blurb on the jacket here, it says, this book is designed to teach people to program Even if they have no prior experience, this book can be used to teach programming to anyone. It's fully available online for free as a PDF. And Dr. Chuck also has a series of videos on YouTube that walk you through things. So if you are interested, you could start here completely free just by looking for Charles Severance or Python for everybody, and you'll find the resources there. So I did survive my Python class. As we alluded to earlier, there were a couple of weeks when I cried a little bit in frustration. I seriously considered dropping it a couple times, but then I thought, no, just keep doing it. You want to do this. You've been curious about this for a long time. Just stick with it. Plus the fact that Python is supposedly one of the easier languages to learn. I thought, if you don't do this, you're never gonna, and you'll regret it. So Super glad I made it through. Some weeks were easier than others. And by the end, I was feeling a lot more confident to the point where I could experiment with things and then even look at other people's code and kind of understand what they were trying to do most of the time because that was part of it. You had to write two or three programs each week and then submit it onto the online. We use Moodle, submit it there, and then you had to comment on two classmates' code. So I looked at a lot of other people's code that's done. <laughs> I give her mad props. I have to say, everybody, there. I think from both her wife, Laura, and I were like, just drop it. You don't need to take that class. So she, she was getting encouragement, but also not encouragement from us at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's great that you stuck with it. and But also... I remember you saying the professor was really clear about there really is a point in the semester where the light bulb kind of goes off. And so you had been given that knowledge, right? Which probably helped you forge ahead in some of the harder weeks at the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. The professor is uh, Catherine Dumas is her name. And she had said, I think it was like the seventh or eighth week where people start having a click because so much of it in the beginning is really just 
setting up a lot of the syntax of the language and the logic behind it. And then you start seeing what it can do. And then towards the end, like we had these hackathons, it was a CSV hackathon week, and then a JSON file hackathon week where we had to find cool things to do with those types of files and manipulating them with Python. And that was pretty cool. So like one file I found was a list of all of the Nobel Prize winners. They had their name, where they were born, the town name when they were born, and then now what it's called, the country, their birth date, death date, what year they won, like so much information. So I thought, oh, I'm going to do something with that. Like maybe just pull out their name and the year they won. And when I was looking through the data, I noticed that there were some line repetitions. So there's actually a Python program I wrote that stripped away the duplicates to make the data a little bit cleaner. And that's what one of my classmates had said, like one of the great uses of Python is not only collecting information, but cleaning up data and then being able to present the data in a way that you want to. Very cool. Yeah. So that was fun. And then the other class I had was a management class. And Man, the professor on that, she was on it. It was a really heavy workload. And thankfully, I was with a great group of people. We all worked really well together, and we all brought our different strengths to the project. So the first thing we had to do was to write a strategic plan for this new archive. And each group was given a different scenario of what their mission was. And then after that, we had to write a grant for a project that we wanted to do with that new archive. That was a lot of good hands-on, real-world kind of stuff, which I liked. Really good semester. Right on. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and if anybody has any questions, you know, feel free to email me. I'm happy to talk about it. And next semester, one of the courses I'm taking is about archives, history, and collective memory. So I think a lot of the things I'm going to be reading for that class will definitely show up on the podcast. Right on. And for people who are just tuning in, do you want to just tell them what degree you're pursuing? Oh, yeah. I'm pursuing a master in library and information science with a concentration in archives. It's at Simmons University, and it's just been really stimulating and exciting. Yeah. And we get to live vicariously (laughs) without doing all the homework. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Emily. So Biblio Adventures. I did a Couch Biblio Adventure via Boswell Books, which is in Milwaukee. This was a pre-recorded event, so you can watch it. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it was with Jennifer Close, the author of Marrying the Ketchups, in conversation with Lauren Fox, who's the author of Send for Me, which is a book we've talked about on the podcast before. And it was a really sweet little event. And I think having two authors in conversation can work really well together. The only thing I want to say about it that made me feel good as podcasters, you know, literary podcasters where we're trying to describe books all the time is Lauren started by looking at Jennifer and saying, Jennifer, I want to ask you the most difficult question that anyone ever asks you. Please briefly describe what your book is about. (laughs) (laughs) It was hilarious. And Jennifer was like, that's the hardest thing to answer. And it was really interesting to watch her describe her book, you know. So I just got a chuckle out of that as you and I, every other week, sit down to talk about what books are about together. I just had a little pet peeve with the event that when they had questions from the audience, they didn't repeat the question. Oh, yeah. So yeah, you didn't hear it. Yeah. It was like a little bit of a mystery, like, what is she actually answering? 
But it was a fun event, and I'm glad that I watched it, and it just made me love her and the book even more. And I will put a link to that video in the show notes. Oh, great. What about you? Well, I attended the event that I'd mentioned last time as an upcoming Biblio adventure, Teaching History with Courage. And this was through the Association for the Study of Connecticut History. It was their spring conference, and it was one of the best online conferences I've ever attended, I have to say. Very fascinating, interesting, thought-provoking. I don't know what other word I could use. Ideas about history and then the teaching of it. The scholar who kicked things off was David W. Blight, who is the author of numerous books, but his most recent and probably most well-known book is Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. He's amazing. I saw him at the Charleston Literary Festival. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he was absolutely fantastic. I so enjoyed what he had to say. He talked a lot about Douglas and a variety of things, but he did bring it to how that history is a political act. And it always has been because history is political. History wars are nothing new. They go back to the founding of our country. He's like, read the Federalist Papers and you'll see that. And he thinks that teachers need to have a political war room, an organization that's a powerful lobby of and for historians and history teachers. He said right now, is it the American History Association? Forgive me, I might have that organization incorrect. They only have one person who's been hired to be a lobbyist. One person against all these other huge corporations. Hired to do what? To like protect teachers from being allowed to teach true history? Or what are they lobbying? Well, the importance of history teaching. In general. In general. Okay. And, and how history is taught, how history is written, a greater understanding of what it actually is. I see. And from a professional historian point of view, or a teacher, somebody who believes in facts that can be verified, original sources that help build an argument and things like that. So somewhat to prevent the whitewashing of history and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And the outright blatant lies that are are going on. And so I was really kind of intrigued by that. And he said that he's been rereading anti-intellectualism in America, which was really popular in the 90s. I didn't write down the author's name. I'm sorry about that. But that was one that a couple people were nodding their heads and putting in the chat that, yeah, that would be a good one to revisit. He said some of the things are a little bit dated, but overall it's really good. So throughout the conversation, he was talking about how the left doesn't do a good job. And so I asked the question, like, why is the left not doing a good job? Like, what is it? You know, why is the right? And, you know, I hate to talk about this in terms of like black and white, but, you know, why is the right so successful? And he basically said that it's because people on the left, they believe in being open minded. They believe in a pluralist society, leftists, liberals, whatever you want to call them, progressives. They tend to be debating within themselves, within their own groups, because they know that ideas are worth debating and talking about, but that's problematic in the current climate that we're in. And then he also just said, we don't have the solid financial banking for the most part. So that was really cool. And I'll just go straight to the end. I mean, there were so many great panels. And then the person who ended things was Dr. Manisha Singha, who's the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. This came out in 2016. Her book and her conversation was really talking about how slave resistance and anti-slavery movements really go together, and she studies them together. 
because they influence one another so directly. Hmm. And is this available, Chris, for people to watch now or is it? I'll find out if it is. I'm not sure because you didn't have to pay for the conference. So I'm not sure if part of it is. I will definitely find out. Yeah. And if it is, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. And then when it comes to teaching history, the bottom line is to teach the facts, teach a narrative that is based in primary sources, and don't wear your politics on your sleeve and let the students figure it out for themselves because they will. They just need guidance. That was a great takeaway because I think a lot of people right now, they want to go when they're charging. I think democratic values, those need to be taught. And civics, you and I have talked about the importance of civics. That came up several times and how important that is. But then when it comes to teaching beyond that, to teach with primary sources and well-documented secondary sources is the way to go. Right. And then somehow manage interpretation. I mean, that's the thing to me that's always, even if you teach from fact, which hopefully kids especially can be exposed to, there's going to be different interpretations of it. But that's hopefully where the conversation can lie. Exactly. And ideas. Right. And what yeah. is a fact? Right. Like just because there's a document and somebody signed it, like it's a fact that that person's signature is on that. Mm-hmm. But there's right. a lot more to converse right. about even a simple document. Yeah. Sounds amazing. It was really glad you attended. Yeah, I have like pages and pages of notes. Right on. So a lot of fun. And And very timely. Yeah, definitely. Well, Aunt Ellen came to town for a very quick visit. And we went on a biblio adventure together to Mystic. And our first stop was the Mystic Noank Library, which is one of our favorites. Chris and I have worked there. We've visited many times. Ellen just loved it. She really loved it. I have some super fun pictures of us there, so I'll try to get those posted to social media. I haven't done that yet. This was in April. We're now in May, but they were celebrating National Poetry Month there and had this super cool display. I'm showing a takeaway to Chris. For blackout poetry, there were these little lunch bags, and they have sweet little note on them that says, blackout poetry, grab and go. And then inside is a description of what blackout poetry is and actual pages from books that they must have been preparing to destroy or something. So you can do your own blackout poetry, which is where you just essentially take a marker and redact the writing to create a poem. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was super cool. And then we made a quick stop at Bank Square Books, one of our affiliates that we love, and took some fun photos of us in front of the whale in front of the bookstores. We had a really lovely time. As I said, I'll get some of those pictures posted to social media. Very cool. So my other event, this was a joint event between the Harriet Beecher Stowe House and the Mark Twain House. It was around the book, The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights by Dorothy Wickenden, who's one of the editors of The New Yorker. She's written other books as well. She was in conversation with Dr. Manisha Singha from the last event. I was like, wow, suddenly she's everywhere. And Dr. Singha is a, a professor at the University of Connecticut, hence her showing up at all these events. So this book which I did check out of the library. It's about Harriet Tubman, Martha Coffin Wright, and Frances A. Seward. Basically, white women and black women working together and how their relationship came to be, the three of these women, and what they did together and separately. It sounds like a really good read. Through their conversation during the Q&A, and this 
is recorded. So I highly recommend you watch it if you're interested in these topics because it was really fun Q&A to just watch these two talk to each other and answer questions together. I really enjoyed it. And they did talk about the split that happened in the women's rights movement during Reconstruction, basically, because some women went the road of becoming racist and others did not. So she talks about Susan B. Anthony and Stanton and how some of their stuff is pretty racist. Really good event. And one of the questions I thought about later and I want to find an answer to is like, why is it Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Why is their story the one that's taught in schools? Because that's who I learned about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And so why them mm-hmm. and not all these other women who were out there lecturing and writing books? Yeah, that's huh. a good question. Yeah. Oh, one of their conversations too, they were talking about, again, the importance of doing archival research and really digging into things. So the issue of Harriet Tubman, I don't know that much about her at all. She never learned to read or write. And one of the things is that she had had a head injury that did cause some permanent neurological damage. So they don't know if that kind of prohibited her or if she just didn't have time because she was taking up the cause of helping to eliminate slavery in the country. But she gave a ton of talks and women took notes at these talks. And so uh, Dorothy Wickenden read a lot of these notes. And then Harriet Tubman's first biographer, or one of the first, Sarah Bradford, she was dismissed for a long time as having kind of made things up and not been very accurate. But from looking at these women's notes of Harriet Tubman's talks and then rereading Sarah Branford's books, she thinks that she was pretty spot on. Mm. Because Mm. Tubman really, like most good speakers, she changed her message depending on the audience composition. Right. She's talking to a mixed audience. She spoke differently. And if she's talking to just women, it was a different. So really interesting stuff. It made me want to learn more about Harriet Tubman. See, she was very active, I believe, in the Underground Railroad in Ohio. So I do feel like I learned about her in school. Because mm-hmm. yeah. sometimes, you know, you learn your history based on where you live, of course. So. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember learning about her that she led the slaves to freedom was right. the big message. And I think it was Frederick Douglass, was it, who called her the general. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that was kind of made is that here it was during the Civil War, And she was going back down into the South and basically leading during a time of war. So she was actually a soldier, Mm. even though technically she wasn't enlisted in that way. But she was actually a general leading people and creating strategy. Mm. Really fascinating. And I have the book here to show Emily. It's kind of a cool cover. The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights by Dorothy Wickenden. It's a great cover. Yeah. So we also went on a joint jaunt together on Independent Bookstore Day. Yeah, man, it was a great day. Yeah, we decided to just keep it local. And we met on the town green, the Guilford Green, and started out at Breakwater Books. It's our local independent bookstore. And It was fun to just have a really nice browse. Yeah, it was great. Neither of the books that we visited seemed to maybe be aware that it was independent bookstore. Yeah, they were not not promoting it there at Breakwater. Yeah. The next shop we went to was a used bookstore that's kind of new in town. It's been around for several months. We just finally got to go. 
and it's Sid's book shack and boutique because they sell some handmade things as well. But really the main show is books. And used books. And they had a great selection. Yes. Really well organized for the most part, like within section. The alphabetizing was sometimes off, but within sections, it was really wonderfully curated, I thought. Yeah. And you came out with a nice little book from the classics. Yeah. They had The Cutters by Best Reader Aldrich who was a Nebraska writer. That book came out in 1926. She is one of the most popular writers of her day. And I was just surprised to find a copy in Guilford, Connecticut. Yeah, it was great. And it had a nice little inscription from dated 1927, I think. Yeah, so it was given to somebody for commencement. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. We had a really good time just checking out what our local bookstores were doing. And we also really enjoyed seeing what some of our listeners were doing Susan out in San Diego went on like a bookstore crawl. I was so envious of that. Right. And so did Robin. She went, I don't know how many stores she had. There was a bunch of them. And she posted some pictures in front of the different bookstores, which is fun to see. Yeah. Some stores have authors on Independent Bookstore Day and really live it up. Our bookstores were just open, which we were thrilled (laughs) about. Yeah. (laughs) Now, there is a big Connecticut competition, Passport. If you hit X amount of bookstores in the state, you get entered to win a raffle. I didn't know that. This is the first time hearing of it. Oh, yeah. Where do we get the passport? Well, I think RJ Julia was participating in that. I first learned about it from when our friend Cindy had her bookstore up in South Windsor. She participated in that. Okay. Yeah. And you get a little stamp to show that you've hit that bookstore. I know I just saw that the Cape Cod has reinstigated their passport bookstore thing, which was, I think, on hiatus for the last two years due to the pandemic. And I was like, hmm, that might be a really nice excuse to have to go to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's yeah. really cool. If if y'all did some fun stuff on Independent Bookstore Day, it's not too late to let us know and send us pictures. We love to see that. Absolutely. Well, we have one big, huge upcoming jaunt coming up together. We do. We are going to Booktopia, kind of. We are not officially signed up for the whole event because neither one of us was completely free to do that. But we are going to Manchester, Vermont, and we're going to be there for the Saturday night big event that they do with all the authors speaking for like 10, 15 minutes at a time at this wonderful big event up in the kids section of a Northshire bookstore. And we're going to shop. We're going to shop. We're going to see old friends. Yeah. We're going to eat food. Yeah, I can't wait. It's a town that I just really adore. And the drive is super fun. As a matter of fact, when we finish recording, we're going to have a little chit chat about what bookstores we should visit on our way up and our way back. Yes. And what we should eat in between. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I know. Me too. There's another event coming up in Connecticut, but it also has an online version for those of you who are not in Connecticut, CrimeCon, which is a one-day conference that we've mentioned in the past. It's hosted with the New York chapter of the Mystery Writers of America in the Ferguson Library in Stamford, Connecticut. And in person, it is there at the Ferguson Library. And then online, we'll post a link for that if you're interested. There is a special Zoom rate of only $25. I think it's $40 or $50, depending on when you register if you go in person. There's also an in-person workshop 
that's only available in person. That's June 4th from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the final event of the day is our buddy John Valeri in conversation with Tess Gerritsen. Ooh. Yeah. That's going to be fun. That's going to be a good, good conversation. Yeah. Our mystery man. Our mystery me. man. Yes. So what about upcoming reads? Well, I've been slightly obsessed with the new television series, Julia, on, I think it's on HBO. And then in learning more about her friend, Avis, who's a character played by B.B. Newworth, who does a fantastic job on the show. And so I was reading more about her and came across a book that I'm going to look for at Northshire when we're there called As Always, Julia. And it's the letters of Julia Child and Avis Devoto back and forth between each other. I've seen it before. I recognize the cover, but I've never read it. And that's edited by Joan Reardon. So this is going to be a search for me on all of our jaunts this weekend. That's great. It's nice to have a like a target. Yes. Especially when I go into used bookstores because I get a little overwhelmed in those. Yeah. What about you? Nice. Well, I am going to be reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck. This is one of my top tens <laughs> yeah. of all time. So this is an outgrowth of the Willa Cather Book Club, which we had our last meeting as the Willa Cather Book Club. We talked about Oh Pioneers, and we knew it was our last novel of hers. We've read all 12 of them, and we wanted to stay together and keep reading. We didn't want to read someone's complete list, but we also didn't want to just bounce around and have a different book, different author every month, every quarter, I should say. We meet quarterly. So we all contributed authors, and we had a list, and I made a poll, and we voted. And it was really fun to see the results start coming in, because I did it from, like, really want to read, would like to read, kind of neutral, not really wanting to read, and then I really don't want to read this. hell no. (laughs) So so it was kind of cool to see, like, at first, Charles Dickens and George Eliot were in the lead, and I was like, oh, wow, and then who else was in the lead? James Baldwin got some good votes, Edith Wharton, but then they started getting no votes as well. So that was interesting. So John Steinbeck was the only author who had nothing but positive yes votes and zero no votes. So he was our winner, our grand poobah. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a total change from Willa Cather, but he has a great list of books to choose from. So are you guys going to do it just for a year? So do four books? Yeah, we're going to do four of his books for the next year. So when we meet quarterly, so July is going to be East of Eden. And we chose that book because it's the book's 70th anniversary this year. And the National John Steinbeck Center is going to be doing a conference based on the book, or around the book, I should say, in September. And that's a cool place. I stumbled on it once a time, quite by accident, ironically on John's birthday, which was weird. Like, how random is that? I drove into town, and I was like, oh, look, John Steinbeck Center. Oh, Who I'm, knew? I am desperate to go there. So it, It's a fun place, I have to say. And they have stuff like his pickup truck that he drove across the country with, with his dog, Charlie, that he wrote about. I also found out, I don't know if I mentioned this a long time ago, well, not a long time ago, but that his boat, his Boston Whaler boat, is at the Mystic Seaport Museum. And somebody who works there commented on my blog just within the last week saying that they don't actually own that Boston Whaler of his or that was his. It's still privately owned. It's just on loan 
for an exhibit that is going to be opening in late May. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Because, huh. I mean, he had that Boston. Well, I mean, he died in the 60s, and Boston Whalers started like in the 50s or 60s. So he had to have one of the early models right. from them. So cool. Yeah, Boston Whalers, for those of you who aren't into boats, they're very ubiquitous around our neighborhood here. They're really sturdy, long-lasting boats. Yeah. And some of them are small, like his is a small fishing boat, probably good for like two or three people up to, you know, bigger boats. So, yeah. yeah. So are you accepting new members into the now called the what? Now we are called the Vintage Book Club. Right on. Yes. That's a great name. We chose our new name because, um, I don't know, somebody said something about vintage. I don't remember who. Oh, I think somebody had been in a book club called the Vintage Book Club that is no longer up and running. And I think we are like, oh, that would be a good name. So the title was available. The title is available. And yes, we are open to new members. July 21st at 1 p.m. is going to be our next meeting where we discuss East of Eden and then choose the next sign back to read. New members are always welcome to just pop in for one book or stay for more. Right on. Yeah. So if you're interested, shoot us an email and we'll send you the information. Bookcougars at gmail.com. And then we have a joint read coming up our read along of two old women by Velma Wallace. This is going to be discussed on episode 156. So if you have any questions or comments, please get them to us by May 18th. Yes, we'd love to talk about whatever questions or things you loved about the book, things you don't like about the book, questions you have about the book. There's a discussion thread on our Goodreads group page. And then we're also hosting a Zoom chat on Sunday, May 15th at 7 p.m. There are still spots available. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. And that's 7 p.m. Eastern, Eastern time. time. Yeah, yes. Thank you for pointing yeah. that out. And uh, yeah, please join us with that. We're really looking forward to the conversation. And I did find another book by her at our library. It's called Bird Girl and the Man Who Followed the Sun. And this is an Athabascan Indian legend from Alaska. It's a subtitle. And this one seems to be about younger people. So it says here, readers will be captivated by this profound myth of two young people who wander far from their culture's deeply held traditions and eventually must find a way to come home again. Mm. Yeah. So another tale, our the two old women is also like a legend. Mm-hmm. So. so reminder that we're going to let you know books that are out now that we've talked about on prior episodes, because just like Chris earlier talked about one that's not out till September. So we want to just remind you when the books are available. So the books that are out now, as of May 10th, when this episode drops, The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray, By the Book by Jasmine Guillory, Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt, The Summer Place by Jennifer Weiner. And a quick shout out to the gentleman caller's son, Liam, who created, maybe even using Python, the language (laughs) that Chris just talked about, a really cool Google sheet for us that queries all of our episode show notes and lets us know the books that are out now so that we can tell you about them. Yes, that's so awesome. Thank you, Liam. Much better than Emily having to read through everything. Right. Scroll through all the show notes. Yes. (laughs) Well, up next is our conversation of Death on the Nile with our mystery man, John Valeri. Yes, we had a fun conversation. I'm not sure how helpful it will be for anyone. (laughs) (laughs) 
we were kind of just, you know, chatting like friends sitting over the coffee table. Yeah, there was a point where Chris started talking deeply about how the book is placed in history. And instead of saying to her, I don't have any idea. No, I didn't think about that. I think I might have just tried to change the subject. <laughs> so um, we'll see what you all think of the conversation. There is a Goodreads discussion thread on Death of the Nile. Some funny comments like Linda, our librarian Linda, was, I don't know if she was walking by her bookshelf. I don't know what happened, but the book essentially jumped out and grabbed her. So she's joining in the conversation. Yeah, she said that she had a copy of one of the volumes of Mark Twain's autobiography that fell off the shelf. It was faced out. And behind that was this cache of Agatha Christie, including Death on the Nile. See, it was meant to be, Linda. Uh, Yeah, so keep reading. And then we had Sigrid joined in the conversation and asked us more about the film because we discussed both the book and the newest Kenneth Branagh movie that's out and available for streaming now. And then I also watched the, was it 2004 TV, Poirot TV series of Death on the Nile? Yeah, with Emily Blunt. Yeah, we talked about that. One thing that we didn't talk about that I still find shocking is that, so this is Death on the Nile, and Agatha Christie actually wrote in a spoiler to Murder on the Orient Express. I was shocked when I read that. It's Perot talking to somebody about this past case and how he solved it. And I'm like, what? Like, oh, that's hilarious. She's totally like spoiling her own novel. I mean, I don't know if she <laughs> thought, you know, everyone has read it already or what the deal was, but I was really surprised by that. And I meant to ask John, it just didn't come up because we were talking about a bunch of different things. Um, I meant to ask him if like she does that occasionally. Yeah, I wonder if like, you know, she wants to know if readers are really paying attention, if some hubbub occurs because she does that or I don't know. I mean, I wonder if people didn't talk about spoilers so much back then, but you would think as a mystery writer, she'd be concerned about that. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I wonder. Hmm. Because, you know, this is kind of related academic introductions to classics. Some of them, I don't think they do it as much now. Maybe they do and I'm just out of the loop, they write these introductions that are full of spoilers. And it's just kind of like, oh, really? You're going to tell me everyone who dies, everyone who gets married, everyone who whatever's. Yeah, it's like they should almost be at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get that either. And you've talked about that before and warned people off. And which as a matter of fact, I think you just did with your John Steinbeck that there's a reader's companion that's a little spoilery. Oh, yeah. Emily's referring to the email for the book club that I'd sent out. This was a coincidence. Like the day I think it was that I came home from that book club, John Valeri posted something about that book, a journal of a novel that he purchased because it was recommended in some writing book that he had just read. I was like, oh my God, what a coincidence. So John Steinbeck, when he was writing East of Eden, every day he would sit down and write a letter to his friend and editor. What he did was in the notebook he was using, he'd write the letter on the left-hand side and then write the novel on the right-hand side. So this collection of his letters, it's, it's under 200 pages, so it's not that big. It's his letters of writing the book. And I just happened to, you know, when it arrived, I flipped it open. And the first sentence I read was a damn spoiler about somebody who dies. <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm okay, so sorry. I'll forget their name by the time I read the book. Hopefully. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if you're interested in reading East of Eden, 
you know, you might want to check that one out. But again, like I told book club members, you might want to read the novel before you read those letters. Yeah, so spoilers. So getting back to, you know, why Agatha Christie might have put a spoiler about Murder on the Orient Express, who knows? Mm -hmm. We didn't discuss that. If anyone knows, please let us right let us in on the big secret or maybe it was her just like teasing readers like oh maybe i should read that book yeah i think she was probably having fun with it if i had to hazard a guess just because she's all about plotting things out and mm-hmm. giving red herrings but it was the right answer yes okay cuz i thought maybe she gave the wrong answer as like a little red herring no okay hmm Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing we didn't talk about was we talked about how death on the Nile is kind of about one woman who's still in love with her boyfriend who ended up marrying her best friend, whatever that's called. Really quickly, like within six weeks of meeting. Yeah. And in real life, Agatha Christie's husband did cheat on her and did go marry the woman that he cheated on her with. Once that happened, Agatha Christie disappeared in real life. She fled for like 12 days or something. And it was big news. Nobody knew where she went. They found her car. She wasn't in it. It was this big drama. And there's a new novel out that imagines where maybe she was or what happened. And it's called The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont. And that just came out, I believe, this year. Very cool. Yeah, Yeah, that's a fascinating thing because where she checked into... She checked in under the name of the woman who her husband was having the affair with. Talk about an F-U. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very interesting. And, you know, really, maybe she was just freaking out, which I totally understand, and she wanted some space, but she was famous, right? So Yeah. So everybody's people thought she died or she killed herself or was she kidnapped? I mean, who knew? Right. But we still don't know to this day what really happened. Maybe she had her own lover and she just went to a hotel room and had a good time. Who knows? (laughs) Emily, dare to dream. (laughs) Well, she ended up having a really good marriage, I think. I think she remarried and had a wonderful relationship from what I remember reading. Well, good for her. You go, girl. So enjoy our conversation with our mystery man, John Valeri. Laughs were had. We are so excited to be here today with our mystery man, John. No mystery here. You nailed it. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you. We used to call John by the wrong name, and he was so polite, he didn't say it for lots and lots of times. People have called me worse things, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) But we thought we'd do something different this time, and I think this was Chris's idea. We're doing a buddy read of Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie. Yeah, I think this came up because of the movie coming out. And that's always a good opportunity to revisit a novel or read it for the first time, as is the case for at least me and Emily and John. I think you read it. You said I've been waiting to read it. You know, my mom gave it to me a couple of years as a Christmas gift. This beautiful Barnes and Noble collection, you know, collectible edition. It's got three of the Poirot novels in it. And it's been sitting on my floor for like two years. And I wanted to get to it. And then I was like, well, maybe I should wait until the movie finally comes out because that got delayed. And then Chris hit me up on Facebook and said, what about a buddy read? And then she said what book it was. And I was like, I think I can actually manage this one because I am like a buddy reads virgin. I have failed at every buddy read I've ever tried to do, including with Chris. So this was the one that finally broke me in. 
That's awesome. Very cool. I didn't know. See, I had assumed that you read all of Agatha Christie. No, I've read a lot, but I just, I kind of read here and there. I've never read them in order. Sometimes I read them to correspond if a movie comes out or a TV show. Uh, But somehow I never read Death on the Nile. I've always wanted to. So this was the perfect excuse. Awesome. Well, we're so happy that we ended your streak of failed buddy reads. Well, I'm going to start out by being the Debbie Downer and say, I'm not so happy because I did not enjoy this book. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, John, what was your quick take? You know, I liked the book. I didn't love it. Um, Same with the movie, but I know we're going to talk about that more later. It's not my favorite Christie novel by far. It's not my favorite Poirot by far. But I didn't I didn't dislike it. It just it took a long time to get going for me. I felt like there was a lot of setup and a lot of characters. And I really had to push through the first several chapters. And then it sort of took off. Um, but the one thing that really struck me, and this may be because I saw the movie first and I don't usually do that. Usually I read the book and then see the movie. Um, but for it being set, you know, along the Nile and in Egypt, I felt that it was going to be atmospheric and it very much wasn't for me with the exception of a couple isolated scenes. I felt like it could have taken place on any steamership anywhere. And that was kind of a bummer because I like to lose myself in sort of the atmosphere of a book. And I felt that that was lacking here. Yeah, I agree. I feel that I'm happy I read the book, but I didn't particularly enjoy it all the time. I read about half of it and then I watched the movie and then I finished the rest of it last night. And that was kind of weird because, you know, I got to ground myself in the characters and then watch the movie and then proceed with the rest of the novel. And it was kind of like, oh, wait, oh, yeah, right. That was that in the movie. And this is this in the book. So that was a happy confusion. (laughs) That's interesting. This is my first Christie novel. So have you read Christie before, Chris? I've read a couple. I read like um, Murder on the Orient Express and The Body in the Library or two that definitely stand out. But I haven't read much more than that. I mean, if there are, I just don't remember them. (laughs) I mean, she's written 66 detective novels. So I'd be interested to know some of your faves. But I will say just like overarchingly, I thought that it was interesting that she writes so much dialogue. And that it makes sense to me that then her novels translate well into movies and into plays. It was. And that's a really good point because she ended up doing a lot of adaptations for theater later in her career. And I think that with all that dialogue, it kind of lent itself very nicely because you already had that to work with. As far as favorite Christie's go, I would have to say, you know, I really enjoyed. And then there were none, which was like the great standalone classic. Um, I've enjoyed several of the Poirot's like Murder on the Orient Express was pretty solid. I actually, I really liked Curtin, which was the last case, um, but she actually wrote it in her heyday and his heyday and then had it locked away and it wasn't released until after she passed. So, you know, she still had her greatest faculties about her when she wrote that last case. And the really interesting thing with that one is it plays out um, in the same setting as the first Faro novel. So it was kind of like bookends to the series. 
And then the murder of Roger Ackroyd was really interesting too, just because she pulls some really, you know, interesting twists that people weren't really doing at that period in time. And I like to think of her books as sometimes they seem really improbable, but they're never impossible. And I think that that's kind of the mastery of her. She was a great plotter and she was able to pull off things that I don't think I ever would be able to. But I will say, you know, I think her writing is very uneven. I think in a lot of ways it's very antiquated. And because she's so popular, Popular. You know, we see that more than other books that we're not rereading these many years later. But I mean, if you read the books, they are very uneven throughout the years. There are excellent books that sort of set the bar. And then there are ones that even she herself sort of considered mediocre. So it really is trying to find the ones that speak to you. And unfortunately, you got to read some of the downers first. <laughs> yeah, interesting point on that. Well, I was reading that they think that some of her novels towards the end, she had Alzheimer's and she was actually writing with Alzheimer's and that might lead to some I of that. I think that definitely would. I, you know, I heard that she, you know, was not at her greatest mental acuity towards the end, but I didn't realize she had Alzheimer's. I mean, I'm just impressed that she was writing as long as she was, but you can definitely see a clear distinction between the earlier books and the late books. That's for sure. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I wonder if the dialogue, because, you know, on, I was cruising her website this morning, and Emily had mentioned in the last episode that she is the most published novelist of all time. And as far as writing goes, only Shakespeare and the Bible have sold more. But she has sold one billion English copies of her novels and one billion translated copies of her novels. I mean, so two billion books. It's insane. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's it's a really amazing. And I think when I was reading this, I tried to put myself in 1937. That's when the book came out. So that's always a hard thing to do, whether you're looking at the social context of a book or the writing style of a book or even the genre because I was thinking about how advanced mysteries are right. now. The the genres, all the subgenres. And so that that was kind of a challenge, but also fun. And one thing regarding the social atmosphere of this book, I was struck by the whole communist angle of one of the characters and the arguments that were made regarding that character against the society in general, but these wealthy people in particular that the character was surrounded by. It was the character Ferguson, and he's talking with Cornelia. They're talking a bit about murder, and, and one of the characters says, well, you should look at, you know, death as the Chinese do, that they don't take it so hard. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of racist and culturally insensitive to say something like that. But then another character says that education has devitalized the white races, that the white races have become over-civilized. And I thought, holy smokes, like this is like really relevant right. to today, right? And all of the conversations about white supremacy that are going on and the devaluation of education in America. What did you guys think about that? Did that strike you at all or were you already like kind of zoned out on the novel? Because this came at page 272 in my edition. Pulling out the quotes. No, I mean, it's interesting that you would pull that out. I think it is really relevant and I think it does resonate today. And it's interesting because there is a lot of racism and stereotyping in the books. But then the flip side of that coin is at times there are characters who seem very progressive. And and that's the, the thing about Agatha Christie. And I think that's sort of her appeal is that in a lot of ways, she was ahead of her times. In a lot of ways, she was of the times. And so reading those books, 
you know, you sort of find the two sides of that coin. I think she's a bit of a mystery herself, but like the point you made, yes, I mean, look at the world that we're living in, that definitely zings. Well, I know she had traveled quite a bit and that influenced her writing. So maybe that's in there too. But this is kind of talking around what you're talking about, Chris, but I want to bring this up because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. Now there are sensitivity readers and people write books in a different time. But when I was listening to the audio and reading it at the same time, they were inserting words. Really? And it was really odd to me. And it was like you're talking about, like I'm trying to think of instead of saying slaves, it would say black slaves. And instead of using the term native, it would give it more of specificity. And it really bugged me. And then I was like, well, but maybe they're trying to correct some wrongs. I don't know. And then I thought, this is this what sensitivity readers are doing now? And when I was working with talking books, which is reading books for the visually impaired, you are not supposed to change anything. And if you change a the to an and, we go back and re-record mm-hmm. it. So it just felt so wrong to me on so many levels. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Because I think like, if it's the audio of the book, it should be the book, it should be the text. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a purist about that. Yeah. But then it made me wonder if we should get copies and see if the book is different, or if this is just narrators that are, you know, they're updating the text as they narrate. I don't know. That's interesting. I haven't listened to the audio, but I think that would drive me a bit batty. I mean... It is what it is. It's been around for almost 100 years. It feel almost like that ship has sailed. And sometimes you bring more attention to it with trying to correct it. But I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a real distortion of history when people do that. Well, sometimes what they're doing is inserting the he said, she said. Mm-hmm. And I think they're doing it to think that the listener might get a little confused. Because mm-hmm. even when I just listened to Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, there were things that were different in the book than in the audio which I thought was very odd. Hmm, Interesting. I do think there was a lot, and then we can talk about it in the movies too, because I think how they portrayed some of that in the movies is interesting too. Right, yeah, and I I just looked down at my notes, and the the other thing about communism is that the angle that it's looked at is that the future is all that matters. The past doesn't matter. Hmm. And I thought... And they're in Egypt, right? right. <laughs> like, and they're there to see all these <laughs> ruins and they're tourists. And, and I just was really fascinated by how these characters came together and why, and then how different they all were mm-hmm. in that regard. And I realized this is a work of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and she was setting things up. It didn't feel like a work of fiction in some ways, though. Did it to you? I don't know. I was like, all these the people did feel real to me. Maybe it is because I'd watched the movie first, though, mm-hmm. which I really don't like to do. <laughs> but I didn't know I was doing a Buddy Reed when I saw the movie. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to the novel, what? And we're talking the novel, not the movie. What are your favorite parts about the novel? Like, what is it that kept you reading, other than? committing to this buddy read <laughs> other than that now you know i'm always interested to see you know who done it and why they done it because i think a lot of times it's the motives in agatha christie's books that really make you wonder because there are so many characters who have reason to potentially do something terrible so i always want to know which one it is and why i also wanted to make sure you know that the book's conclusion was the same or similar to that of the movie because sometimes they do a complete switch up and you don't realize it and you just take for granted that every Everything is the same. And 
Here, you know, it was largely similar, but I actually, you know, I felt like the motive and the whole sort of love and passion and this makes us do crazy things. I mean, that's sort of timeless. And so I think that people will still relate to that today. I mean, you know, watch Dateline and see what crazy people in love or out of love do to each other. Uh, so I just, I found that the motive itself was pretty timeless. And I liked the idea of this character who knows she's becoming a bit unhinged is literally stalking people from place to place. And then they're centralized on a steamship where nobody can get away from each other. And you just know that something terrible is going to happen. I really liked that setup. It took a while to get there. <laughs> Yeah, not yeah. in the movie. No, it was very quick. Book, in the book. It definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I liked that conceit as well. But Tony said she didn't get what Lynette saw in Simon. And I felt the same way. So from the very beginning, in both the movie and in the book, I was like, I don't get it. I mean, obviously, he wants her for her money. <laughs> you know, like, I, I didn't get why she would fall for him. But they didn't build that up at all. He just seemed like someone who needed a job. Didn't have much going on, you know, and then she fell in love with him I, and and ditched his other girlfriend. So did you no, guys I don't know, but I way? thought that maybe she saw how happy, you know, and vital Jackie appeared when she was first with him. And maybe she thought that some of that would rub off on her, if you'll pardon the expression. But I just, <laughs> yeah, otherwise, I don't know. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to the outsider that, yes, he's probably interested in her money. She has a boatload of it. But I think that could have been played out more. And I thought maybe it was more of a psychological thing. Like we sort of always want what somebody else has. And then we have it and realize maybe it's not all it was cracked up to be to begin with. And I actually thought that was more interesting seeing what happened to the two, you know, female friendships when the man sort of came between them. Yeah, I think for me, I just kind of chalked it up Mm. to lust. Jackie was so in love with this guy and she wasn't concerned about money which, you know, makes you think like, well, he's probably not concerned about money either. And so maybe he's a safe guy mm-hmm. for her. Because, you know, when you're wealthy, I can't imagine, you know, how hard it is to trust people. But there was a bit of a disconnect for me that, you know, she is such an astute businesswoman. Mm-hmm. And then for her to marry somebody like within six weeks or however long it was, I just thought that's nah, a little bit unrealistic. But then again, she's not, she's 20. Yeah. And back, you young. know, she yeah. was probably horny and you know a lot you know a lot of women didn't have sex out of wedlock back right. then for a variety of reasons and i just wondered how much that played into it yeah. and that that was the one thing she didn't have is this love because she didn't feel it for the lord that she was engaged to well and i i did believe that part right like she was kind of fleeing a situation she didn't want to be in mm-hmm. see that's a good point too yeah yeah have you ever done that either of you run from one relationship well, i've only been another? in one relationship <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you're no i did not yeah yeah it's interesting i don't know that i have either i've been usually single yeah i mean i agree with you like the wanting what you don't have but also the like, I mean, we're not talking about the movies yet, but in the scene in the 2004 TV version of it, you know, like the look in the music when Simon and Lynette see each other. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. It's like you believe it, like love at first sight, yeah. you know, that whole thing, which people believe in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, but not enough to marry when you're a multimillionaire in 1937. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just, that to me, I mean, that to me felt like a setup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm the novel yeah that's all that's okay but that's what she needed to do right Right. and i haven't read any other agatha christie so i don't know if there's always that moment of like we're putting a bunch of people in a room together and you just have to kind of believe yes Yes. i think there's (laughs) uh, yeah i think there's a lot of that and for this book 
you know, when I was younger and I wanted to read mysteries, the adults around me said, well, try Agatha Christie. And I did not get into her at all. And reading this book made me realize, like, yeah, I had no patience as a young person for all of this setup. Like, you know, situation after situation, that whole first chapter or two was introducing all these characters. So, yeah, that setup is, I think, classic Christie. Well, and then it's just a ton of dialogue between all these characters. I was just completely lost. And Chris did a wonderful job of sending us a spreadsheet with a million characters, basically. That was very helpful. I know some of our listeners said they were making character maps and all sorts of things as they started to read. I think that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. That's what I did. I started on an index card and I thought, wow, this is getting quite cramped. (laughs) My index card isn't big enough. (laughs) So it's not that I made the spreadsheet. I plagiarized the information from the internet and then put it in a spreadsheet because I'm really into sortable, searchable information these days. (laughs) And this novel lent itself to that. And I mean, there were a lot of interrelationships, right? You know, the different people. I'd be interested to know if all of her books have that, if she's kind of interested in human nature and how all these different characters relate, or if that's more of how she creates the I think she was really interested in human nature. And that was sort of Miss Marple's big thing is, you know, she can solve anything just because she knows human nature and, you know, what people think and do and why. But yeah, it's pretty consistent throughout the book. That and taking a bunch of people and, you know, putting them on a train or a ship or in a house, stick them on an island, you know. Right. And then realize how they're all related, even though nobody realizes it at the at the onset. Right. I just kept thinking yeah. they should just take Simon, toss him overboard and become friends again. Like, Yeah, that's a really good point. The loss of this friendship that was really important to each other. Yeah, yeah for this man who was basically a man child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the gendering of different characters was really interesting to me in this novel and you know from things like oh a woman wouldn't know the sound of that gauge or caliber of gun but a man would mm-hmm. you know things like that right. i kind of rolled my eyes a little bit and also when she was going to sign all of her paperwork and they were like just sign it women don't usually <laughs> read this stuff yeah they've not met my wife like <laughs> <laughs> I call it yeah, on something yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> It'd probably take more time to look at it, honestly. <laughs> I thought Christy mixed some stuff up like that with gender, but a lot of it was, I think, very much mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. Did she do that unconsciously, or did she intentionally use gender and the cultural gender assumptions to mislead readers? I think it was right. probably both. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, her first husband did leave her for yeah. someone else. Once I read that, I was like, oh, so maybe that's where some of this book mm. comes from also. Yeah, because this book is kind of like midway through the Perot right. series. Yeah. 15, believe, 16, so. I think, years into the series. But yeah, she had some life experience to draw on at that point between what happened with yeah. her first husband and all her travels. Um, and it does. It makes its way into the books. And when you learn more about her actual biography, you can start to sort of see pieces of that. Or at least we think we do. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, she'd also worked as, I can't remember, like a nurse or in a pharmacy yeah. or something. And yeah. they say that's how she got all the information about all the poisons. She oh, yeah, she was great animals. with the poisons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is so funny. And the, the whole like, well, I don't know how spoiler we want to get, but totally. like the nail polish thing and all that kind of stuff was like, oh, enough already. I don't know. I just didn't. Yeah, I read that section like three times. <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, maybe I'm just too tired. <laughs> yeah. I just really don't care. <laughs> Well, you know, whenever anything red goes missing, just 
No, the basket. That's like the gun, you know, that somebody sees in the first chapter and then it's in the last chapter. Like, right. it, but yeah, it seemed in the movie. It was a little bit different in the movie, but same thing. As soon as something red goes missing, you're like, oh well, that's got to be critical. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. I felt exactly that way. Do we want to talk yeah. about the movie? Yeah, let's jump into the. So we're talking about the Kenneth Branagh new release that is currently out streaming. I watched that before I read the book. And then I did last night, I watched the 2004 version. It's like a Poirot television series where they covered different ones, right? And I watched it for free via YouTube. It was an hour and a half, I think, or something. I do want to watch that one. Is that the one with Emily Blunt? Emily Blunt. Oh, yeah, David Suchet. He's great. Suchet. Yeah, he plays Poirot, a very different Poirot than Kenneth Branagh. And then a fun fact for, well, John's younger than us, but for me and Chris... There was the one guy that I was like, who is that? He seems so familiar from my childhood. And the guy that plays Pennington was David Soule, who played Hutch in Starsky and Hutch. And I was like, he doesn't look like he looked as Hutch anymore. But I was like, he's so familiar. So I had to look him up. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And he sang that song. Don't give up on us, baby. Remember that song? Yeah. He I don't like remember that song, but I, I think you sing it. Moving. <laughs> well, that, that series was like 75 to 79. You probably I feel remember. slightly younger. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie, thumbs up or thumbs down? Let's go around. Emily, you first. You know, I saw it in the theater. It was my first time being in a movie theater since the pandemic had started. So I liked it because of that. And it was visually beautiful, I thought. But... um. I didn't. So my thumbs are in the middle. I'm doing this like you can actually see me, but it'll all be audio. Didn't love it. Didn't hate it. Uh, like Emily, I actually I saw the video first. We streamed it a couple of weeks ago, and I liked it better than Brano's Murder on the Orient Express. Like Emily said, I thought it was really beautifully shot. So I had all of those images in my mind, and then there was sort of really none of that in the book, which I found a big disappointment in the book. Um, but it was not shot in Egypt or on the Nile predominantly. It was shot in England, so that was on a soundstage, um, and they sent a second crew to, you know, get some of the pyramids and the river shots. Uh, So it was interesting to see that a lot of that was imagination, and it's just amazing what people can do with technology. But I loved the visuals. I thought it was stunning. I did think that even though it takes place in the past, the sensibilities are much more modern. I liked that they were trying to be a bit more inclusive. You know, you have Black characters, gay characters, and it's more representative of what we actually see in the world today. I liked that. You know, I felt it was a bit more overtly sexual. Like there was some hot dancing going on at the beginning of the movie. And I was like, whoa, they danced like that back then? Like, I don't even dance like that now. Oh, my God. Uh, and then, you know, it's interesting with Kenneth Branagh because I just I don't picture him as Poirot. But it's kind of like when Tom Cruise played Jack Reacher. It's a stretch and you just sort of either get used to it or you don't. I like what he does with the character. But I think I will always see David Suchet as Poirot because he just did such a phenomenal job, both in the look and in the delivery. Um, and another thing I'm kind of torn about is how they tried to link this movie and Murder on the Orient Express uh, with the character of Book, because he existed differently in the book of Murder on the Orient Express, and then he was sort of a young, dashing man in the movie, and then he carries into Death on the Nile, but he's not in the book. He plays the place of a different character. And it does, you know, sort of give continuity. So it's like a, a franchise with continuing characters. And they sort of try to get a big emotional moment out of it, which may or may not have worked in the movie. I don't know how you felt about that, Emily. But it was really kind of a mixed bag for me, as was the book. I liked it, didn't love it, but preferred it to the first film that he did. 
Interesting. Yeah, I didn't really enjoy it at all. Um, it was the $90 million budget that they had. And I thought visually there were a lot of nice shots of the characters, but I really thought some of the scenery looked fake. Mm-hmm. Some of the CGI'd. Yeah. It looked very CGI'd. Yeah. Yes. And then I didn't appreciate the new storylines that were brought in. It really bothers me. I mean, I appreciate artistic license, but it bothers me when directors, movie producers, whoever is responsible says, this is Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. Why don't you say it's like inspired by? Mm. Because you've introduced new characters. You've created this whole setup about Perot's mustache, mm-hmm. um, which I thought, what was the point of that? But as John just mentioned, it could be a whole, you know, setup for the, what was the word that you used? His franchise. Yeah, um, maybe. With these movies. Because he is making another one. There's a third one that's going to be adapting one of her lesser known novels. So mm-hmm. that will be interesting to see. But yeah, I was kind of disappointed in the movie, I have to say. And I didn't really like Murder on the Orient Express either, his adaptation. I think they're very mm-hmm. self-indulgent. It's kind of my takeaway on mm-hmm. them. I don't think he's a good Perot at all. So he's doing because it. He sucks the himself. humor out of it all. You know, there's no humor. There's no real humanity even. And, and just the way this was shot, it was like close up of this character talking now close up of that character talking. And I just, I didn't appreciate that. So, yeah, I also kind of thought I figured it out pretty early on in the movie. I didn't feel that way in the book, which I know is a funny thing to say. Cause I mean, unless as John said, they, they changed the ending, which I assumed they hadn't, but yeah, I mean, I think the $90 billion budget also had a lot to do with probably how much they paid the cast because the cast was very filled with famous people, you know? Yeah, and I thought completely underutilized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think, I don't think, I think he's a great actor. I don't think he's a good director. Mm, interesting. Yeah. This know is, you know, my professional <laughs> But it's funny, too, because, you know, people say he's so exacting and precise and everything has to be a certain way. And that's interesting, though, because that is sort of the heart of Poirot. So it might not translate into film, but it seems like there's definitely some connection between their personalities, which is maybe why he gravitates, you know, towards that source material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got to wonder, like, was he one of those actors who was like, okay, I'm going to be old enough eventually to play King Lear or... You know, I mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that is because I haven't read any interviews with him, which I think will be mm-hmm. something I'm curious to do to just try and understand his creative vision a bit more and his execution. I mean, I do agree with John having watched both of them. The 2004 version is 100% white, except for the native people who live in Egypt in the movie who are, you know, like swimming in the water and waiting on them hand and foot and things like that. So I did appreciate that as well in the new adaptation. You know, like I love Annette Bening and I always like to see her and things Mm. and stuff like that. But um, there's so much drama around Army Hammer (laughs) who plays the main event that I just, I had a really hard time with that too. And in the sex scenes and stuff, I just thought, oh, I wouldn't (laughs) want to be the one having to kiss him. Horrible thing to say out loud, Uh. but... Well, yeah, the opening dance sequence, you know, I thought, okay, for one, I don't think any woman would be doggy style down on a jute joint floor. <laughs> like, she probably, her hands would stick to it. So I just thought, 
I just thought that was a bit much. I mean, it was, I guess, sexy. I don't know about that. Like I, I said, because I was looking at Army Hammer with like one eye closed. Yeah. Like, oh God, he just came out saying he's like into cannibalism. Like, ew, oh, I just ew. can't. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? Abs 100%. Start oh, reading. Wow. Uh, y'all get online and start reading about Army Hammer. He's a train wreck. But I will say I loved the woman who played... Jacqueline, she's in the show Bad Education. Yeah, Sex Education. Oh, sex Education. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, she did a good job of being, you know, unhinged. Yeah. Like, she looks unhinged yeah. in the movie. I appreciated that setup because mm-hmm. you do believe that she is this heartbroken, revengeful person. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I didn't believe that one in the with the woman who played Jacqueline in the 2004 version. Didn't feel that way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, y'all. I didn't mean to go on an army. Oh, no, that's okay. I I painted a picture, but he's, yeah, trouble. I know. The opening scene, you know, with all the dance and the sexiness, um, or somebody was thinking a lot of those things were sexy. I always think, too, like, (laughs) he's swinging her around. like, And, of course, people just clear the dance floor for that kind (laughs) of behavior. It just seemed a little way too choreographed. I did like the food scene, though. I liked the food that got delivered to Poirot. That was my favorite part of the whole movie. <laughs> His dessert? Yes. Yeah. But he also really loved the eggs in Orient Express. <laughs> I didn't see that movie because I, I think you, Chris saw it and didn't yeah, like it. Yeah, you don't need to. Like, yeah, One is probably that. enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I only watched it so I could talk with John about it. That was probably the only reason. Oh, sure. It's Will my I watch fault. the third it's one? All yeah. Fault. It is. Yeah, you know, you're my fall guy, John. Hey, I say. <laughs> um, but I probably will watch the third movie that he puts out just to because. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my experience is I probably will not read another Agatha Christie. Sorry, world. But I also think I have seen 10 Little Indians performed. And that's an Agatha Christie, yeah. right? Yeah, that's the one that's been renamed, and then there were none. And then there were none. And that okay. is not the original. There have been three titles of that book, okay. and the first one shall... Yeah. Not be named. Okay. I think I enjoy her work as plays. Like that makes sense to me with all the dialogue and that, you know, like it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to have the boat to Egypt. You know what I mean? Like maybe it can be invented and created in different ways. That's not like, I think Branagh was trying to stun us with his imagery and that's, yeah. Well, for me, the boat and the costumes were the star. Mm-hmm. I mean, the yeah. boat I just thought was yummy. Yeah, and it was. I think that would be really cool. My mother-in-law and I used to talk about taking a cruise down the Nile, and I just think, wow, that that would be the kind of boat to do it yeah, on. Absolutely. Yeah. I, there were some cool shots I'm remembering now with because the boat had this very interesting etched glass. Yeah. And there were some cool shots, I thought, where they were looking through the glass and things like that. But I have to say, I was confused when I started reading about Agatha Christie that I thought she also did the movie Death Trap or the play Death Trap mm. that had nothing to do with Agatha Christie. Oh, no, she did Mousetrap. You were close. <laughs> right, mouse exactly. Trap, I was confused. <laughs> And Mousetrap is the longest running play in history. It has mm-hmm. been running since 1957. That's amazing. Crazy. And it, they only paused it because right. of the pandemic. Isn't that wow. crazy? That is amazing. Yeah. Now, we did have a person on Goodreads write in with a question for John. Uh-oh. Yeah, this is very much for John. So, John? I'm just going to read the whole thing. She said she thought the Brandoff film was enjoyable as long as you didn't ask too many questions. <laughs> Or think about it too deeply. <laughs> Some of the character changes were interesting, although I missed stodgy old Hastings. Mm-hmm. 
Can we ask John about the background cast in the movie? Casting-wise, it's like they didn't even try to make it feel like we were in Egypt. Considering Branagh's attention to issues of race, I thought that was really weird. And that was by Sigrid. Yeah, I mean, I think, one, you know, they wanted their stars, and they sort of got a trifecta for the love triangle. And then after that, you have to fill it out with people that you think, one, are going to resonate and also are going to bring people to the theater. Like we have Annette Benning, who, you know, is American, but she's not playing an American in the film. Um, but he sort of likes to take these grand names and give them characters. Uh, I liked that. But I think a lot of times, you know, it's just filling out the cast. You know that they're not necessarily going to be the focal point. He did a lot of sort of amalgamations, you know, taking characters from the book um, and twisting them so that one person in the movie would represent two or three people from the book. Um, he did the same thing with the character of Book. Like in the mo- in the book, um, Book was a completely different character, uh, but he wanted that carryover. So I do think a lot of it has to do with, you know, more his artistic vision than necessarily staying true to the book. Um, Because there are a lot of differences, but I also, I can understand it because we were talking a while ago how it was very confusing at the outset of the book. There were so many characters and so much set up that if you try to put all that into a movie, nobody's going to know who is who and who's doing what. I mean, I think there are enough characters in the movie that still there were questions at times about what the relationships and motivations were. And I will say, yes, Kenneth Branagh is a really exacting director. He actually wanted to film in Egypt. That was the initial plan. They just realized that that was going to be much too hard to do. Um, And they felt that they could do a better job living up to his vision by filming in and around England. So they did you know, film in some public places, but they also had, I think, a very elaborate staging. And they sent a second crew to do actual filming uh, in and around England. So you did have actual shots of pyramids in the Nile, but they did recreations of partial pyramids too. So it was sort of an amalgamation of that. So I think that, you know, he did that with scenery. He did that with casting. And I think it's honestly, it's just his style. And I think that some people are going to relate to it. Some people aren't. I'm very much in the middle, I don't dislike his movies, but I don't love them. And I think a lot of this stems from the fact that, you know, they did such a good job with the Paro series and they pretty much translated, you know, every novel, every short story that he appeared in. So I think that we all have an image of David Suchet and that's very hard to live up to. So I kind of give him props for at least trying to take the character in a different direction. Um, and one thing that I found that I really like what he's doing is he's he's showing how... I don't want to say weak, but it seems like Poirot really has a fondness for young star-crossed lovers, and that occasionally comes across in the books, but I think he's done a better job of bringing that out in the films and giving Poirot a more focused backstory. Some people will like that, some people won't, but I do think it gives an insight into why Poirot really has you know, an affinity for characters like Jackie, because you get in the book and in the film that he really takes to her despite the terrible things you know that she might be doing and he sees that she's getting herself into trouble and he wants to get her out of it and he knows that that's just not fated to happen Uh, but i think that you get a more nuanced picture in this film than actually in the book i think one of the things you made me think of while um you were talking i don't remember exactly what triggered it but that it made me think like if Christie were alive today writing, what different choices she would make. And I think having that backstory of Perot and how he became and why is interesting, you mm-hmm. know, and that is kind of an expectation in a lot of ways 
that readers have today. Mm-hmm. They do want to know more about the chief investigator. Right. And, you know, I will say, too, you know, speaking of the characters, I mean, I did like that they tried to be inclusive and a bit more diverse, especially in the times that we're living in. Um, you know, people are going to say that maybe that was a ploy, you know, that was done for an intended purpose. And maybe it was, but I think maybe, you know, it needs to be. And we don't just need an all white cast. Um, you know, I, I think those are the risks you take when adapting something that's, what, 80 some odd years old. Um, you know, how, how close do you stay to the original versus making it more contemporary? Uh, this is definitely a much more contemporary film. Um, but I think the essence of the original is there. So it's not literal truths, but there are essential truths. And so I'm, you know, I'm all for it. Let's try to be progressive. I think that she was in her own way and Kenneth Branagh is in his way. When Sigrid's asking about the background cast, I think that when you watch the 2004 version, you do feel more like you're in Egypt and like the boats just kind of slowly floating down the Nile. And there are a lot of characters that in the background that do look Egyptian that are helping them aboard and helping them as you go. But then the main cast isn't diverse, like you're saying, John, with the new version. So it's an interesting switch up. So Sigrid, if you watch the 2004 version, I'd be interested to hear what you and Can I also just say that. quickly too, um, a lot of people don't know this, but it was actually filmed in the 70s as well. Um, I haven't seen that version yet, but they actually were on location in Egypt for the majority of the shoot. So that one would probably be interesting um, to watch because they were in the actual places that appear in the book, which is, I think, kind of cool. That is cool. cool. And they didn't have CGI. (laughs) (laughs) So I wonder where I didn't look up where the 2004 version was filmed. Do you have any idea? I don't know. I would assume, I mean, they tended to film in and around Britain, but I I really don't know. I actually, Mm -hmm. I have the whole Poirot series and I'm making my way through it very slowly and I have not seen Death on the Nile yet. I'm going to have to, I'm going to watch it tonight and do my own little comparison because I haven't seen it, but I'm interested. It's always interesting to see how they take on new lives the more that these things, you know, get made and remade. Or sometimes they don't. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Right. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, good, John. You'll have to phone in and give us your comments after you watch that. Yeah. You have a homework right. assignment. Thank you so much. I know you have to go. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Death on the Nile. It was fun. Oh, to do, but pleasure. It's always lovely to hear your voices and see your faces. I know that people don't get to see this, but I can actually see you because we're zooming. So this is a highlight, <laughs> real people in real time and an excuse to read this book. So thank you, Chris. You know, I guess we're even now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, John. Thank you both. It was good to see you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.